Avalara proudly sponsors this podcast series about accountants by accountants and featuring some of the best thought leaders in the industry. Thank you to our sponsor, Avalara. Avalara's award-winning tax automation solutions help accounting practitioners and businesses of all sizes simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates, automated returns filing, and more. Learn more at avalara.com. Hey everyone, this is Laura Lynn and you're listening to the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly Accounting Podcast. More accountants than ever are experimenting and shaping our profession in new and interesting ways. On this show, I sit down with these rock stars to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, the struggles, and the strategies that they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Accountants can earn free CPE credit from listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app in the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. everyone. My name is Laura Lynn Wilson. I'm a CPA and host of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly Accounting Podcast. Today, we have guest Jen Wilson, who is co-founder of Convergent Coaching, which was established all the way back in 2000. And what she said, kind of as I was talking with her beforehand, was we solve problems, which I love that. And before she started Convergent Coaching, she had some experience as a partner at BDO, as well as being VP of Sales and Customer Service on the tech side with Sage Software. So Jen, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Laura Lynn, for inviting me. And uh, thanks to the Avalara folks, too. Happy to be here. All right. So I was doing my pre-interview stalking. So I went over to your website and I love this that popped up. It was a pop-up that said October 21st is Firesome Clients Day. So tell me kind of what, what prompted you to make that a whole experience. Well, so we're declaring it like a national holiday. We're calling it National Fire Your Clients Day, October 21st. And we'll probably uh, try for another one in May. Um, and, and do a, you know, two holidays a year kind of a, an approach. But uh, what prompted it is that, you know, we are short people in public accounting. I know that's a newsflash for anybody listening. Uh, you know, we all know we are. Um, the pipeline is diminished, and we have had the silver tsunami in this country of uh, retirements. And really, the impact of the knowledge capital and the uh, baby boomer workhorse hours that have left to retirement has hit us. We have we're short people, short capacity inside firms, and our people are overwhelmed. And people at all levels, by the way, not just not just talent or staff, but partners too, operational resources. Everybody's a little bit burnt, and uh, because of that, you know, we don't have a quick solution to add people, and so we're concerned about how people are going to feel about staying for the spring busy season as they finish this rough fall one and another rough busy season and a string of rough busy seasons that just doesn't seem to let up. And so uh, we know a quick way to open up some capacity or make room, and that is say no to some things you said yes to before that you don't have any room for, and that's engagements and clients. So we're declaring that October 21st, people should come out of this fall busy season and and say goodbye. I love that. Let me know how I can promote that on Twitter. Um, 
because I will spread that all over tax Twitter. So I'm curious. So for those who, who don't know, Convergent Coaching, now do you specifically, is it only, do you only work with accounting firms or do you work with other industries as well? No, we're just in the accounting profession. Uh, we work with CPA firms, uh, accounting firms, technology firms that do accounting, um, and uh, and then associations that serve the accounting profession, tons of them, and, and partner with and work with uh, vendors also that serve the accounting profession. So then most of your clients are the ones who you're talking with kind of about this pipeline problem. How big are they? Well, uh, it, it ranges. I mean, we have, um, you know, smaller firm clients from when we started, you know, they are bigger than they were when we started, but they're still pretty, uh, you know, smaller, under 10 million, uh, seven to 10, somewhere around there. Our sweet spot's probably more the 30 to $50 million firm, somewhere in that range. Uh, but we have firms that are considerably larger too. And it really depends on the service that we're delivering. Uh, you know, we, we deliver uh, strategic planning and the whole planning suite uh, for firms. And that gets us in with the C-suite uh, type folks inside the firm to help map out their vision for the future and uh, their core strategies every year. And then we do a lot of learning and development. So firms use us in different ways. And, um, and so it sort of depends on the service offering, what our real size ideal is. Mm -hmm. Do you find then that then if your sweet spot's kind of the 30 to 50 million, but you also work with sub 10, do they experience this kind of talent pipeline shortage differently? Or is it the exact same for both of them? Like is one is the bigger one? Can they hire easier or does a smaller one hire easier? Have you noticed anything with that? Well, uh, first turnover rates are uh, higher, the bigger the firm. Um, now, that's not 100% certain because if it's a bigger evolved firm that's progressive and all over progressive strategies and has been really investing in business model evolution, then they are turning over people like the rest of the bigger guys. But the turnover percentages or the people leaving firms definitely is lower for smaller firms. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that they aren't all short people. They are. We, we, we don't meet firms that aren't short people, that aren't considerably short. And so, um, you know, yes, recruiting's different. Small guys would tell you all the time that uh, they get no respect on campus, that the professors only, you know, recommend the bigger firms. And, um, you know, they, they do have some challenges in attracting folks. But, uh, you know, we have a, uh, a thing, you know, what's your unique, special, and different? And what makes you the, you know, the destination workplace, to use Josh Burson's term, uh, you know, that, that I would want to go to instead of a bigger firm? If small firms define that and and live it, you know, really um, live that brand, then they should have equal chances of recruiting. So then what are, you said some of these bigger firms are doing some more progressive strategies that's helping them retain talent longer. What are some of those things that they're doing that's helping them keep people in the seat? <laughs> well, I mean, and it's big and small firms. I'm just saying bigger firms turn people over at a higher rate unless they're progressive. Um, uh, small and medium and big firms, it ranges. It's more about who the leaders are than the size if they're being progressive. Some of the progressive things we're seeing that are critical. First, you know, and I've been talking about this so long, it's almost embarrassing to discuss uh, because it's so branded to us. But any, anytime, anywhere work. I mean, you have to be remote uh, ready and not because a pandemic hit. You should have been remote before then. And, uh, and you have to manage a hybrid blended workforce and you, you can't give wishy-washy mixed messages about return to the office 
if you really are anywhere work, then you don't care where people are and you figure out how to manage culture and collaboration and relationships and learning and all the things that can be done at distance. So anywhere work, anytime work, true flex, asynchronous. I don't care what your schedule is. How can I reach you? Uh, you know, what response times are we going to agree to? You know, can we serve clients together? Could we find times that work in our two different schedules? Uh, when we get to anytime, anywhere work, that's massive. And it allows for borderless recruiting of talent and offshoring and outsourcing. And it allows for borderless recruiting of clients and really being able to serve clients at distance. And so anyway, that's one progressive business model shift that we definitely think helps both with recruiting and retention. There are others too. So when that was actually one of the things I picked up from your website was the anytime, anywhere work co coaching and consulting. When did you actually launch this? Because most people, this wasn't even on most people's radar or most firms radar until like 2020 thought, oh, shoot. But when did when did you be like, when did you discover like, this is something that is very important? <laughs> yeah, well, so I founded the businesses and anytime, anywhere work business in 2000. So we've been anytime, anywhere work with unlimited PTO and all of our assets in the cloud back when it wasn't called the cloud. And it was like just a step above dialogue. 22 years I've been running that business and I've recruited and hired and managed my team nationally from wherever they lived. I didn't care where they lived. And the people that are local to me, Nebraskans, I hardly see them other than in video. So we just, um, you know, for a long time. Now we've been studying it. We've been teaching it. So we were doing it. We taught it right away to anybody who would be willing to listen and learn about it. And so we have clients that have been doing it a long, long time. And um, I wrote an article in 2017, and, and we were already doing our Anytime Anywhere Work survey because we've been surveying. We're in our sixth edition of that survey now, getting ready to publish it. That first one was probably 2012, something like that, when we started studying and reporting on Anytime Anywhere Work or remote and flex practices in the profession. And then, um, you know, we have been uh, you know, working with firms. And I wrote this article in 2017 on remote audit, got tons of hate mail. Uh, my editor at that publication said, please don't ever write on this subject again. But when the pandemic hit and they were, you know, everybody was pumping out remote audit content and here's how to do it and, and webinars to do it. And, uh, you know, he called me up and said, do you want to write? I told you so, you know, do you want to write the rebuttal? Uh, which I did not do uh, because, you know, I mean, it, uh, I'm so happy, you know, I'm so happy. Firms were already progressing or we would have been demoralized. Our Anytime Anywhere Work survey, if you watch it over time, we were getting rid of mandatory Saturdays and mandatory weekend work and all this stuff. It was slowly but surely getting there. And then the pandemic just hit fast forward, which I couldn't be happier about. It, exactly. Yeah. So I was going to ask, that was one of the things I was going to ask. With this program, what are kind of the main objectives people come at you with of why it can't work with how you're presenting it? Um, gosh, the objections. So uh, we literally created a video course on the objections because we were so sick of hearing this. We hear there literally, if I teach this like a um, you know an AICPA engage conference or something, I I'm telling you, I will get the exact same six or eight objections for sure. And so we were like okay, you know, we, we're going to have to document this in some way so we don't have to keep repeating it. But, you know, uh, I can't do learning at distance. So I can only train people if I'm right next to them. 
that's one uh, super common. Um, another one is, how do I know if they're working? They're probably cheating. They're probably like laying in the sun in their backyard and there's no ability to see a screen in the sun. And so they're cheating, you know, which is like a distrustful thing. And I tell people all the time on that one, if you're, you know, there are very few cheaters in public accounting. It's a pretty high integrity profession. So there are very few cheaters, but the ones that are going to cheat, they'll cheat you sitting inside your office. They'll be playing solitaire. Give me a break. Uh, so, but uh, that's another very common one. Um, you know, uh, our culture. We can't preserve our culture if we work at distance or if we have some people at distance, you know. So there's a very common list of objections and we can overcome all of them. There is not one single thing we can't do other than like uh, kiss, hug, shake hands, and, and none of that stuff is that good to do, uh, you know, at work anyway. And then it's not that good of an idea in germ spreading flu season or COVID time. So who cares? The rest of it can be done. And, you know, to just put one word in there about this, you know, some people hear us talk about it at Convergence and they think we just think everything should be remote. We should never be in person again. And that's not true. We love in person. I think in person is fabulous. And I just love being with people in, in real life and three dimensions. I do. But I do think that firms can do so much more if they let go of old ways of approaching um, our business and forcing three dimensions. When we think that three dimensions are required to do traditional things like onboarding new staff or running an internship program, we limit ourselves. And that's where we're, we're pushing hard against those sort of old ways of thinking. Avalara helps businesses of all sizes get indirect tax compliance right. Their sales tax solutions help you manage sales and use tax complexities while lessening risk for your business and clients. Whether you're a small business or a global enterprise, Avalara can help you deliver tax compliance services confidently and efficiently. Over 30,000 organizations across the globe use Avalara's cloud-based compliance solutions to solve transaction tax compliance needs, including sales and use, VAT, and other direct and indirect taxes. Yeah, I really like this idea more of intentional gathering instead of like being in person just for the sake of being in person. Like I've seen, I'm trying to remember, it might be Brandon Hall. I might have seen a Twitter of them. He's a, I think his firm's completely remote, has been, I think, pretty much since the inception, but they would do a big retreat where they'd fly everyone, you know, all their employees out to some destination. And I'm like, that, that's cool. That's fun. Like, why can't, why can't more people do that, you know, and, and use all that money that you'd instead spend on overhead, you know? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah and exactly. And, and yet, even if I have a big facility, because I'm invested in overhead, which a lot of firms are, the, the facilities, leases, there are big ones out there and they're real and they're not breakable because commercial real estate is not that transferable right now and maybe never will be again. We'll see. But, uh, you know, firms that have these big, locations, that's okay too. Just don't force people to go to them unless you have those intentional gatherings. And we have some super cool, uh, you know, firms that are, uh, they'll, they hire people at distance. They have them in 22 states or something. They don't care where you live when you work there. And they, when they hire you, say, these are our three firm weeks. And we get together for five business days. You'll fly in on Sunday night. You'll fly out on Friday night. And we're going to have, you know, social activities, we're going to have learning activities. We're going to have strategy. 
you know, we're going to have networking and friend making and all these other cool things that will be happening just so that we can be together and have the cultural feel and make sure that every person feels a part of it and included. Um, I've got one client that in their summer firm week, they're flying family members in and they have, you know, folks living out of the country that work for them and they're flying them and their spouse and kids so they can do a firm picnic with the families, like an old fashioned picnic, uh, but they're flying them all in and paying for it. And it's all about, you know, and, and believe me, we're making enough money in public accounting right now. And if we're not, we're not charging enough. We don't value ourselves enough. And that's another whole conversation, just terrible pricing self-esteem. Uh, but firms are making enough money to afford those kind of intentional meetings. But saying, get in here so you can work outside my office door so I can feel good about the fact that we're moving work because I can see it. Um, that's super old school, unsaleable, frankly. And uh, I'm really worried about those RTO messages right now. Yeah. And that you talking about that firm flying people and that just triggered in my mind Acuity, which I'm sure you know, they do Acuity Con. They have their own little conference for every, you know, for their whole firm and they bring in, they have sponsors and they have guest speakers. And it's just such a, such a cool idea and a cool way of doing it, you know, compared to drive 30 minutes every day into your office. <laughs> I actually did see a tweet. Um, I think it was, I'm trying to remember her handle, Mountain West, but she retweeted an article that was like, and 50% employees say they miss their morning commute. It's like average time, 26 minutes. And it's like, here are their favorite routines. And it's like, no, people miss routine. They miss structure. They don't miss having to travel to an office. Those are two very different things. Well, and I would tell you that what we miss from our commutes, those that might, is that we miss what we would call the decompression and the gear up. So I leave my house and I gear up for work for the 26 minutes. And by the time I get there, I've sort of let go of the, oh gosh, did I, you know, remember to close the laundry room door or something? And I can get focused on work. And then when I leave work, people like to have the border of I leave work and I go into my commute and I let all the junk that happened at work go. So when I walk in the door, I'm fresh for my family and I'm not like, you know, sending last minute texts and all this other junk that I might feel like doing. But you can create those borders inside your house. You know, you can make routines that have stop and start and clear like delineation between work and, and uh, personal life. You don't have to just like let it all blend and be together 24 by 7 like some people do. So I think that's yes. what they're missing. And yes. they, don't miss yeah. park they don't miss parking if they had to pay for it downtown. They don't miss gas costs, by the way, we're supposed to be conserving. You know, uh, those of us that are trying to be green, we shouldn't be wasting the time on on mass transit uh, costs and, and um, gas and all of that unless we're driving an electric car. But even electricity is costing somewhere, you know, in the environment. So some of that stuff is just, just so I could show up and sit down in a cube and run into you at the coffee bar and say, hey, Lori Lynn, nice to see you. How's it going? And you say, great. And I say, what have you been doing lately? Well, I saw a movie. What was it? Oh, such and such. I liked it. Great. You know, and, and I call that like relationship time. And I can do that with you right here in video. You know what I mean? I don't have to run into you in the coffee bar. And so I just think that we have to really think about what it is that we're trying to accomplish when we're pushing returning to the office. What is it? 
is there a certain demographic you get more pushback from, meaning firms of a certain size, or is it just kind of across the board? What have you seen? Well, so I would say, uh, no, it is not firm size and it is not geography necessarily. You know, we have certain geographies that just tend to be more conservative. Uh, so maybe they would push back, but it's more, you know, if I'm going to get a lot of resistance, it's going to be more level-based, more coming from what I'll call senior manager, principal, director, partner. And that's usually people that have 10 years plus experience. And so it could be a little bit age-based, but it's not really fair to say that. I have more than 10 years experience and I've been pushing this a long time. So it's not all generational, but it, it is level-based and it's surprising. You know, we think most people think all the resistance is coming from partners, but it's actually that layer right under the partners. They're the ones that are pushing to come into the office. They're the ones, they themselves have been coming into the office. A lot of those folks at the at the director, senior manager, principal level, they feel like they can manage the people better if they can see them. And, and again, I'm not, I don't want to throw them all under the bus. They don't all say that, but that is a really uh, significant kind of tier of resistance we encounter. Do you, so now that you're saying this, there's not, you said necessarily an um, age doesn't divide people. Do you find that, does gender at all? Oh, um, yes. Uh, doesn't it, you know, doesn't it divide a lot of things? Um, so yes, I mean, there isn't any doubt. Here's why I made all those funny faces and sounds just then. You know, we've been teaching flex a long time and we've never wanted it to be like flex, the policy of the female. Uh, first of all, if it were, we'd never probably get it passed. Uh, second, it isn't just women who want flexibility in their lives or want work-life integration and balance or want to be able to leave for kids' plays or, or who, uh, you know, need flex hours because they're the primary caregiver to get the kids, you know, home from school or whatever. It's not just women, especially when we move out of, you know, younger Gen X and down, it's kind of equal male, female, you know, uh, wishes for this flexibility and intentions to be participating deeply in their families and meaningfully with their families. And so um, it's not just a girl or chick issue, uh, you know, in, in terms of the need for it. But yes, at the senior level, of course, we're only, what, 23% uh, female partner anyway. Yeah, uh, guys are resisting. And, you know, and women, not all of them are super supporters, but many females who have made it to partner have had to have flexibility to make that work if they had family. Uh, kids in particular. And uh, and so those that did, of course, they're proponents for flexibility. It's the way they were able to get it done. Now, I have this thing I say, and I, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever said it into a recorded uh, microphone, but I'm going to say it right now. And it's kind of a joke, but it isn't. And I, and it's real. Um, you know, I say, I love my husband, Brian, and I do dearly. I've been married to him 34 years and together with him 40 and uh, I just love it. But you know what? I wish I had a wife. Every wife needs a wife. Yeah. Every working wife, anybody with a big role could use a wife. Now, that's, you know, I, I don't want to sound sexist myself. You know what I mean? That's a sexist statement. It makes the wives that these guys have that help take care of birthdays and groceries and laundry and 
make sure the kids' homework's done and interface with the teachers and build care plans to make sure their children are healthy and uh, make sure the, you know, the lawn is getting aerated and all that stuff. You know, the people that have that handled by somebody for them have an advantage. And those of us that have come up and had to manage all of that plus big jobs, we did it, but it was rough. And we flexibility was the only way it was going to happen. Yes, yes. So like my a little bit of me personally is I'm a single mom. So I have two kids. And sometimes for fun, like when I'm and I'm self-employed, but when I'm feeling like really frustrated, I'll go and look and see what jobs there are. And, you know, after five minutes of looking at jobs, should I be a W-2 for someone else? I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no way I could do this. There's no way because I split my time 50-50 with them, but that 50% I have them, like, I have to be on 24-7 and at the drop of a hat have to be able to care for them in whatever way they need. And it's just, so I've, I've said... Unless like you can build a firm where everyone can be successful, not just people who have a wife or who have a, a full-time person staying at home supporting them, like, but everyone can be successful. That's the type of firm I'm going to be really impressed with. Not the firm that's, you know, the, all the partners are working 80 hours a week and, you know, look at all these revenues, but it's, there's no balance at all. That doesn't impress me. Right. And I don't think any of us, uh, you know, are striving for that. I think that's the old way. Um, it's It was a traditional way and it did work in its time. It doesn't work anymore and it won't be part of our future. And I'm super good with that. Yes, firms have to be inclusive. And that means inclusive of people with whatever family structure they have and whatever, whatever personal needs they have. And we have to build a supportive firm culture that backs people up you know, so that you end up having to stop because the nurse calls and says, hey, we're sending everyone home. You have to stop. And, you know, today you're doing the Abelera podcast. Somebody backs you up. Uh, you have to have it. You, you do. Uh, firms have to build that. And to, not, and to not make people feel bad about it, have it be just the way we work. This is how we work. And uh, when I founded this business in 2000, I left employment working for, you know, uh, the man, um, you know, and that's what I would tell people. I just can't do that anymore because it doesn't work for the life that I want to build. And I, and, and I want to build it, that kind of lifestyle for other people too. And the people I attracted to this business to work in it, you know, we were all building the same thing. We were making a living and making a difference, um, but also having a life and, and a family. Mm-hmm. Did you know that 52% of accounting practitioners, large and small, still rely on spreadsheets and manual processes for sales tax compliance? Why not move your accounting practice to the 21st century using Avalara for Accountants? The Avalara for Accountants automation platform helps accounting service providers of any size grow their service offerings with sales tax prep and filing, transfer pricing, research, business license management, and more. Scale your practice efficiently with award-winning automation that brings efficiency and accuracy to sales tax compliance. Want to learn more? Email accountants at avalara.com or visit avalara.com. When you, um, so when you started your company, was it, were there co-founders? Was it just you? Who, who was that founding group? 
Uh, it was me and my partner, Jim Metzler. And Jim Metzler is a CPA out of Buffalo, New York. He and I knew each other from Sage. Uh, he would always say, I knew Jennifer as a, uh, a fake blue signature on a direct email solicitation, you know, which I um, sent him repeatedly until he broke down and became a uh, back then Mass 90 VAR. And, uh, and he had built an IT consulting practice and wrote a book about how to build a million dollar IT consulting practice within a CPA firm and had a little bit of fame from that and was traveling around speaking. And we ran into each other and I was, I had left uh, you know, or was I think thinking about leaving or had left BDO at that time. And um, I was newly pregnant with my second child and he was signing books at an ITA conference. And, uh, and I went up to him and said, Hey, Jimmy. And we had a, you know, a hug and he said, I got to get out of, I got to get out of my firm. And, um, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to start, I'm doing consulting and I'm going to start something. So we just got together and converged and we built the business uh, around the convergence of uh, IT and accounting and the convergence of leadership and management and, you know, called it Convergence Coaching. And then our, our biggest client was the AICPA and CPA.com and the birth of CAS. Uh, CPA.com was just born, you know, so we were in the room for that and uh, and met with those guys a lot during those first few years. And Jim then left me in 2003 for our biggest client, AICPA, and became the VP of small firm interest for them and did that for, I feel like, a decade. He was uh, just an incredible resource for small firms at the Institute, and I bought him out at that time, 2003, and have, um, you know, subsequently added partners, Tamara Lorzell and Renee Molders, and uh, we just have a really cool gig. Oh, that's so cool. Wait, so now that you said this triggered something I also saw on your website, you talked about how he was like, I want out of my firm. Let's do this. One of the things you offer is like succession exit planning. Can you talk a little bit about that in this in in more so I'm curious as to what people what issues people are running into in this economy in this kind of new environment when they're planning these things that maybe weren't weren't even consideration 10 15 years ago. I mean, it's uh, it's all over the place. But one of the bigger issues today is, um, you know, like if I have I'm inside a firm and we're more of a book of business type firm versus a one firm approach, I have this book of business or column of clients or, you know, uh, billings under management or whatever you want to call it. And now I'm going to leave and I'm looking around inside the firm to find out who I'm going to transition to. And guess what? Everyone looks very full. <laughs> Who will I send these clients to? And uh, and if the firm doesn't want these clients, like we're National Fire Some Clients Day, um, if the firm doesn't want the clients, then what of my buyout? You know, and and depending on the firm's structure, what their operating agreement says, the buyout may be structured as deferred comp, and that person gets their deferred comp and. Whether we keep the clients or fire them is immaterial, but other firms have different operating agreements, and that's leaving some retirees in an awkward spot where they're trying to force the transition of clients when it's not the best thing for the firm. The firm should not keep those clients. In fact, when we teach uh, sessions on how to fire or call clients and how to trim your base, we talk about retirement is the best time to fire clients because they're already getting bad news that Jim is leaving. And so, you know, we'll tear the Band-Aid all the way off and say, Jim is leaving. 
and he is no longer able to serve you and neither are we. And here's the name of another provider and we move them on. So that's one big issue. Another is the affordability of the, of the buyouts and making sure that whatever it is that we have committed to pay the partners that would be retiring in this next decade, whatever their payments are, however they're structured, uh, whatever the valuation is, that it makes sense for today. And that's, um, you know, we've been doing that work a long time. It's not just 2022 or the pandemic or any of that. It's every year you have to stop and say, does what we structured back then make sense? And, and you know, we view it that if you have a firm that you should be super loyal and committed to the health and sustainability of that entity and that each individual person you want to take care of, but in truth, we can't necessarily fuel every person's selfish interest. We have to think about what's good for the, you know, the collective and what's good for the entity. And sometimes there are some deals that do not make sense anymore, too rich, um, and we have to renegotiate those. And um, I usually, you know, I tell people all the time, I will never get voted homecoming queen of this profession uh, or, uh, you know, whatever, most popular. I'm not going to get that, uh, you know, uh, because I'm willing to say, you know, and do hard things that need to be done to make sure that an entity is successful or at least that the leaders understand the inhibitors to that success. Are there, are there certain things you've seen in the, maybe in the past, trying to think with real, with really the advent of cast services, are there certain things, metrics within a firm that's going to make them more valuable this day and age? You know, tech adoption. I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) Well, so, um, I mean, uh, we are uh, part of the CPA.com CAS benchmark study, you know, so, uh, and I am um, a benchmark and numbers geek, which is, you know, weird because really I, I care about behavior and, and those kinds of things, but numbers dictate behavior and behavior impacts numbers. And so uh, we pay attention to both. And so, like, broadly, I would just say to you, you know, first, I know you know this, and everybody else listening probably does too, CAS is the fastest growing, potentially the most lucrative service we could be offering, and certainly transformative and difference-making. In all of our professional services, there's one or two things that have the biggest impact today on on, uh, financial performance, and they're hard to do, but uh, one of them's easier right this minute, and that's get your rate per hour up. Um, It's not the bigger impact thing, but it is pretty big impact. And so get your rate per hour up. Right now we have a rule that firms were saying you have to be following at a minimum the 10-10-10 rule. Fire 10% of the clients, give your people at least an average of a 10% raise uh, because inflation's 9%. And you have to uh, raise fees by at least 10%. And across the board, and any client that does not accept a fee increase or gives you heck about it, goodbye. I'm sorry. You don't value us. You want us to work for you in an inflationary time for less than 10% increase in fees. That's not fair. You're not our partner. You don't care about us. So you are definitely going to that list of national fire your clients day. So the 10, 10, 10 rule is important, but leverage, what leverage, so rate per hour is one, the other is leverage. And that's how we make money in professional services. And the, and what it is, is you leverage the work down any work that can be done by somebody at a lower rate per hour than you should be done by that person that's at that lower rate per hour. And we all really focus on moving work to the right place 
And that could be offshore, by the way. That's a pretty good rate per hour out there for us to pay. Uh, but, you know, wherever it is, we have to move that work to the right place. When we hoard that work and do it as partners in our practices, um, which a lot of us do, uh, and we don't delegate, we don't empower, we don't teach, we don't invest, we don't accept less than perfect, we're too high control. When we do those things, we strangle out growth, we strangle out profitability, and we certainly make our people find so the best and brightest are going to find somebody else to work for, for sure. So th those are a few thoughts on the, on the numbers. Okay, so I have two follow-up questions. First one is the 10-10-10 rule. Is that an every, every year type of thing, or is that this just like this year? It's this year for sure. Last year we were saying it too, uh, for sure. So 21, 22, we're short resource. So we're, we're in this weird dynamic where demand is high and supply is low. And so pricing goes up. I mean, that's just like, you know, economics 101. And we all got it. Those of us that at least uh, attended any economics course or read any economics article or book, it's impossible not to get that one. So any client of yours knows that. Uh, supply demand curve, and they need to be willing to pay more. And so for now, fees should be going up. And if we can't raise fees because we're selling into a segment that cannot afford them or because the service that we're offering is too commoditized and there are low uh, ball players in the market and we can't differentiate them, we need to stop those services if we want to be profitable. Um, so uh, you know, that's that's that rule. 10% average increase? No, I mean, gosh, it was 3% two or three years ago, right? And I don't like 3%, by the way. I mean, I felt like that was super skimpy. And I think our starting salaries are embarrassing, right? I mean, embarrassing. I'm so bummed about starting salaries uh, after the five-year degree. Give me a break. We need $70,000 minimum starting salaries, period, across the board for accounting grads. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I could get behind 10% every year for salaries, but let's just pay attention to what's happening with the supply-demand curve. And it may be more than 10% because supply is so limited, and it depends on what you're hiring anyway. Um, but uh, cold 10% of your clients, yes, every year, because your firm is like a tree, and it's growing from the top. And as it gets bigger, your ideal target client has to increase to the size of it, and the sophistication of it has to increase as well. And, and what you have to do is trim the bottom branches so the tree can grow from the top. You won't get any leaves up there on top. If you allow all the lower branches to stay intact, you've got to cut them. And that's like Jack Welch wrote about 10%. Uh, you know, uh, he, he suggested we cut 10% of our clients and 10% of our staff that we go through a nine box. I, I would nine box if I was doing that. He didn't say nine box, but I'd nine box the staff. And, um, and I would, you know, figure out if I was going to really be real about who's not performing, who doesn't fit here, who's on the wrong path. He suggested we look at both of those things every single year in any market. Wow. Wow. That's some really interesting points. Okay. So then my second follow-up question, which ties in with it, of course, is offshoring. How many of the clients you're working with are embracing it versus not? And is there a particular type of firm that embraces it or is more open to it? Like how, what percentage of people do you see actually utilizing offshoring? Well, um, it's rising rapidly. That's the first thing. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember, Laurelyn, I'm doing, I'm writing, um, I'm in the midst of working with 
the CPA.com CAS survey and the Anytime Anywhere Work survey. I'm right in the center of the data analysis of this with members of my team and members of, of their team. And um, I don't remember which survey has which stats, and I don't want to, say, disclose survey results that aren't mine. So what I'm going to say is this. Um, I was surprised by the percentages that say that they are out offshoring, offshoring. Um, and I think it's, it's getting to be in the 25, 30% range that will say that. And, um, and, and maybe there are more who are exploring it. We're giving out the names of different uh, firms that we know are doing it and also the offshore firms that are um, supporting it, you know, the, the providers that we've known our clients have had success with. We're giving those names out daily at Convergence. So there are a lot of people exploring it for the spring busy season. I think we're going to see it really catching on. And it makes sense for it to obviously low supply means we've got to go to places where there's more supply. Uh, but also, if we really want to leverage, we can leverage lower rate per hour work, the simpler work out and offshore. But there's also some very sophisticated people available fractionally, uh, uh, domestically and offshore. Um, that are really solid, technically higher level technical resources, specialty resources. And that's a super cool leverage point too, where you can um, use them fractionally when you might not have enough work to keep them f busy full time. So we, we love that whole model. Everything about it, we think makes sense. And to, for firms to explore it. I, yeah, I'm partnered with a firm, um, LTS CPA, and they've been building an offshore team. They actually created their own mini offshoring company as well so people can go through them but they have their own internal team as well doing everything and they've spent i'm trying to remember when he first so one of the partners one of his partners abel is actually from the philippines and i think his parents still live there so abel travels there so it's not like some third world accounting sweatshop <laughs> like, you know, it's all the laws are being followed but they started training up their staff obviously on the bookkeeping side, but also on the tax side. So now they're at the point, and they've been doing this for years, where they have workers who are able to pretty much be tax managers over there. So it's definitely been a long game, but now it's like the, the dividends are really, really paying. Well, and, uh, you know, it is not something that's like a light switch. You don't flip it and it just suddenly works like a champ. Uh, I tell firms all the time, anything like that, it's a business process reengineering evolution, it's kind of like the same transition we went to when we went to uh, scan ahead and auto-populate, you know, uh, OCR technology. At first, you know, firms were like, that sucked, and it was so horrible, and it took so long, and it doubled our, you know, our time and our utilizations through the roof, and our realization's terrible. And I was like, that's year one. Congratulations, you're through it. Now, do it again. And uh, same, with, same with offshore, same with outsource, same with fractional. Uh, we tell, we try to tell our clients it's not going to be perfect, and and also, you know, it's not just um, imperfect process that you're trying to learn and reengineer. It's also a people game, you know. So you might end up with the wrong people first, or say, same with technology. Sometimes you're like the idea is a great one, but you pick the wrong platform, you know. So whatever it is, just keep doing it, man. Keep evolving. It's not okay to say, well, what appears to work for, you know. 30% of the firms in this country won't work for mine. I just would say, uh, you might as well just say, I don't want to. 
you know, like <laughs> be straighter, be straighter about your objection because um, it will work for you. You just have to make that investment like your, you know, like, like your example. Yeah. My, uh, my hitting coach always used to say, if you tell me to do something, I'd say, I can't do that. He'd be like, you know, how you spell can't W W O N apostrophe T. <laughs> it's not that you can't, it's that you won't do it. <laughs> well, and, um, uh, my husband and I, uh, you know, have had a long time trainer and physical therapist. He's just an amazing guy. And in his gym, uh, if you're in there, even if you're in there for physical therapy, if you use the word C-A-N-T, you're doing 25 push-ups. And, you know, <laughs> unless you have like a broken shoulder or you've just had surgery or something, in which case he's probably going to write it down in your chart and you will be doing them later. Um, and so, I, I mean, you just don't use the word in there. And, you know, it's, it, it's really smart. You know, that's a smart way of living. Um, my personal motto is, you know, be unstoppable which is, you know, the flipping of can't. And um, being unstoppable means, you know, persevering and doesn't mean perfect. And it doesn't mean, uh, you know, great results the first time. It just means, you know, set your intention and keep persisting and uh, keep scrambling over the wall and keep trying. And, and sooner or later, you'll get there. Oh, yeah. I like to describe, especially entrepreneurship, uh, two steps forward, one step back. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to get there, but it's going to take you about twice as long as you think it's going to. <laughs> and sometimes, and then sometimes it's like, wow, that was easy. And so, you know, and, and every once in a while you hit, uh, wow, that was easy. And you think, man, I'm going to keep doing this stuff. Uh, the, the flowing backwards and being pulled backwards is frustrating and it's helpful to have a network. Um, you know, I've got a friend, Amy Vetter, and she and I just did a leadership lunch chat. We stream live on Fridays and she, uh, our last one was just all about getting friends that are entrepreneurs like you, building this network of people that are engaged in similar activities so that when you're being dragged under, you know, they can kind of come and help pull you up a little bit and also tell you their stories of getting dragged under so you can realize that it's normal and, and be encouraged to keep persisting. And so, uh, it's helpful to have that network, especially if you're a solo on, uh, entrepreneur. It's just you've got to build those friendships with other people and, and even not just other solos that are starting out, but other people further down the path. I love to share what we've learned to anybody who wants to hear it because, you know, I started, uh, you know, Jim and I started kind of all by our lonesome and we worked remotely. He was in Buffalo and I was in New York. We did it from the very first day, but we've, you know, we made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of you know, sad failures and things that we didn't like. And uh, if I could save other people from those things, I I will. Yes. Yeah. No, the community piece, yeah, especially if you're a solopreneur is so important because it gets incredibly lonely. Now, this is a free pitch, but uh, the Realize community uh, that's ran by Jason Stats is a really great place for that exact demographic. They host roundtables, you know, they have different threads, groups. I'm not currently a part of that community right now. Maybe I can get in for free after talking about it, but it's for people who kind of need that support system. I didn't need that as much anymore because I am partnered with this other firm who's doing that all for me. <laughs> but I mean, people are, you know, very open with their experience, tech stack. Like, I mean, you can ask that group anything from super technical tax questions to like, what's, what's your onboarding process like, you know, and you'll get input from multiple people. So a hundred percent, that's so, so important. But 
Anyway, okay, so people want to connect with you. What is the best place to do that? Um, social, connect with me on LinkedIn um, or uh, Jen Lee Wilson on Twitter, um, Insta, Facebook. Email me at janetconvergencecoaching.com. Um, that's, those are the best, you know, uh, digital mediums are best for me because I'm always on video like this of some kind, uh, um, and, or traveling, uh, for, for my work. And so phone is harder, but I can get digital connections and then I can always reach back and schedule a time to talk. Perfect. And if, am I remembering correctly, if they go to their website and then it's the National Fire Client Day comes up, is there a resource that they can download or... Yes. What's that resource? Well, we have uh, we have a number of tools and resources that we are supplying. Uh, sample firing letter, uh, you know how how to um, grade your clients. You know, or sort of I- ideal target client definition, but also the grading process to try to determine which ones should be fired. Uh, we have a number of resources around that, and and also we, uh, my partner Renee and I did a, a webinar, and the recordings out on our recorded webinars all about firing and there are a bunch of really good ideas and there were it was a live webinar and there were people in the chat uh you know sharing all kinds of stories and ideas of how they were getting it done and it was really an encouraging webinar from that angle oh that's awesome so producer zach we're gonna put these as links in the show notes because i think this is the well i think we're gonna title this i haven't come up with a title for it yes yet but it's gonna be about National Fire Client Day with Jen Wilson. <laughs> but no, that's an incredible resource. I mean, if you spend any amount of on time on tax Twitter, like this is this is a subject that comes up frequently. So any type of resource that can aid, you know, and some of us are pretty timid. We don't like confrontation. So anything that can aid us in that awkward conversation and that process is going to be incredibly valuable. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I mean, just say no. Great leaders say no. I mean, they do. They say no more than they say yes. And uh, this is an example of no. And we have to have the courage to do it and confidence that we could, if we accidentally overfire, we could find new clients, we can trade up. Um, But there's, you know, this is one of those things to go out and play with and see what you can make happen and make some space for yourself so that you can develop your people, develop your practice, do something proactive, serve your clients more deeply. Um, all those things. Yes. And remember, if you're saying no to something, that means you're saying yes to something else, a better something else. <laughs> and you know me, you can find me on, uh, well, you can find, don't go to LinkedIn. I never, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I never respond to messages. You can find me on Twitter at Laura Lynn Wilson, or if you're on TikTok, I am at the not spicy accountant. So you can find me on there well too, on there as well too. So thank you so much, Jen. It was so great having you and I will see you all next time. Thank you.